Welcome to the Nonprofit Utopia podcast, formerly known as Nonprofit U. Our podcast is an extension of our community, and we provide a forum where nonprofit stakeholders can share lessons learned and discuss the latest developments in the industry. My name is Valerie Leonard, your host. I'm the founder of Nonprofit Utopia, the ideal community for emerging nonprofit leaders. We provide a safe space for you to improve your leadership skills while building a high impact organization through networking, professional development, and training. You can find out more about us on nonprofitutopia.com, Facebook, and Twitter. I encourage you to follow us and to comment early and often. You should know that this is a social show and we ask that you share the link to this episode in your networks as we speak. The hashtags for this episode are 100 Days and Counting, Forefront, Philanthropy, and Nonprofit Utopia. You can also leave comments or email me questions at Valerie F. Leonard at nonprofitutopia.com. And we encourage you to sign up for our mailing list to keep abreast of the latest developments with the Nonprofit Utopia community. We've included a link to our mailing list in the comment section for your convenience. Our guest for today is Monique Brunson-Jones. Monique is a licensed clinical social worker and she's the president and CEO of Forefront. Forefront is Illinois' statewide association representing both grant makers and nonprofits, as well as their advisors and allies. She's a visionary leader with an extensive background in mental health, violence prevention, philanthropy, and gender and racial equity. With over 20 years of experience in her career, Monique's civic interests span the intersections where the lives of those most vulnerable fall victim to structural expression and, I'm sorry, structural oppression and inequity. Monique most recently served as the president and CEO at the Evanston Community Foundation, also known as ECF, making her the second CEO and the first African-American since its founding in 1986. During her tenure, she was successful in diversifying the board, staff, and community investments to reflect the voices of the community. Prior to ECF, Monique served as Director of Programs for the Chicago Foundation for Women, leading the establishment of the 100% Project for Gender Equity. She also served as the Director of Violence Prevention for the Cook County Department of Public Health and Clinical Director for the Jane Addams Hall House Association. Monique is a graduate of the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville with the BA in Social Work and the University of Texas at Austin with the MS in social work. She completed the strategic perspectives in nonprofit management executive program at the Harvard School of Business. In her self-care moments, she enjoys running with her Peloton trade family, golfing, sewing, showing appreciation for life with her husband, daughter, and Yorkie in Chicago. So we are here today, first of all, to welcome Monique and to congratulate her on her first 100 days and counting at Forefront. So Monique, thank you again for joining us. And again, it's a pleasure to have you. But before we get into the discussion about your first 100 days, we want to give our audience a little bit of background 
about forefront, you know, the organization, you know, who you are and what you do. Thank you for having me, Valerie. I'm excited to talk to you today. It has, uh, it's been about seven months. So um, it's, it's interesting. So you stated what Forefront is, but our mission, Forefront's mission is to build a more vibrant impact sector for all the people of Illinois. And that last part, all the people of Illinois is where um, comes in our nonprofits and our foundations, our allies and alike. And what that means is for nearly 50 years, we started out with a focus on just our found our fundraising partners. And okay. then we expanded that to include our operating nonprofits and their allies in a space where we want to offer um, collaborations and connections for the things that matter to, to address some of the most pressing issues in our community. So very generally speaking, we are a resource to our mm -hmm. nonprofits and our foundation partners across the state um, for tackling, again, some of our biggest issues. Okay, awesome. Yeah, and I know that you guys are getting ready to do your own strategic plan, or shall I say a new strategic plan. Correct. But, yeah, but for the purposes of our audience, we just want to share where you are now as a baseline. Mm -hmm. So if you can give us an indication or can you let us know what the first strategy is? And basically, we're going to go through the, the first strategies. And, and your first one is to invest in the nonprofit sector. We want to continue to do that. We do. So let me speak to the, the Forefront's last strategic plan was um, the impetus behind the name change from Donors Forum to Forefront. Mm -hmm. And so the last six or seven years has been about let's, let's see how our expansion goes and how the community understands who we are now that we're not just donors forum or donors mm -hmm. forum of Chicago. So we have been offering the items that you mentioned. So the, the, the strategy to um, invest in the nonprofit sector looks like making sure that our nonprofit leaders understand um, where funding opportunities lie how to effectively mm -hmm. apply for those funding opportunities, how to collaborate with other nonprofits across the state that may have similar missions as they. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes it looks like new nonprofit leaders coming onto the scene and like, wait a minute, this is more than I bargained for. And in that case, we introduced them to our library. Um, and because of COVID, good and bad, right? Our mm -hmm. library went virtual, which essentially actually made it much more accessible mm -hmm. to a lot of our community. So what we're looking at now with strategic planning is how do we become the organization that our sector needs right now? Mm -hmm. And how do we make it easy for us to be flexible and nimble as the community changes? Mm -hmm. Need something else, and that's that's what we do. We create what we need. When right. What we're looking at is not what we need anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. So when you talk about community investment or investing in your nonprofits, mm -hmm. okay, one of the ways you do that clearly is through the library, and and what are some of the other ways? The other ways is we do have a series of capacity building workshops. So we appreciate, and I think everyone appreciates participating in what would be a cohort style workshop. Mm -hmm. So same amount of people dedicated to learning together over a course of 
time. So we, if you'll go on our website, you'll see some of the options available. So um, we do our peer skill share, which is supported by a lot of our um, nonprofits and our foundations where someone who has a skill set offers that for free mm -hmm. <laughs> to a colleague who may be in need of it. And it may look like something as learning about strategic planning, learning what financial management looks like in your organization to the next level, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> learning um, budgeting. It may be something as simple as that. And we have a space where professionals come together to lend those services for free. So you're investing in each other, you're investing in the field and you're learning together. Um, so that was just, just one of the ways. The other ways is what I call just call and response. We get emails all the time. Oh my goodness. Are you a musician by any chance? I or am not. Okay. <laughs> However, my daughter is. <laughs> oh, okay. yeah. I have not heard that term call and response since my freshman year music class at Spelman College where we were learning about Negro spiritual. You know, I learned about that in, in French class when my, my instructor would say, écoute et répète. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'll do that. Um, but similarly, we, on a daily basis, we often get emails um, or voicemails inquiring about a service, a connection, something to help a nonprofit professional. And we pride ourselves in being able to connect people, call people and say, hey, this organization is looking for this. What can we help them manage in this space? Mm -hmm. So that's been the case for the last 18 months. <laughs> All righty. Um, yes, yes, yes. And then your second strategy is to develop top talent. And I just want to get a sense for, you know, what do you mean? You know, talent means different things to different people. It does. So we run what's called our Grant Makers Institute. And in that Grant Makers Institute, we have a faculty that is dedicated to assuring new grant makers, new staff members of our foundations are equipped with the skills and the knowledge to get engaged and not mm -hmm. just sit behind our, our desk, our proverbial desks and um, make decisions, but what it means to be an engaged and an informed grant maker and helping to make sure that our staff that are here can, or in our organizations can be promoted, know what the bench mm -hmm. looks like, um, know what it takes to get to the next level in your organization. Um, it's more about providing a space for cohesive learning. Okay. For developing top talent. Awesome. Awesome. And then one of your strongest strategies, I think, is improving systems and policies. You guys have made awesome changes in a very, very short time. So you want to share a little bit about that work? Oh, my gosh, it's so expensive. Um, so regularly, we will have, again, organizations call us to say, you know, there's this policy that may interrupt how we do our work. Mm -hmm. um, or it, it just may be a threat to us being able to support the nonprofit sector the way that it should. And we have in-house staff who evaluate that to see how to engage the entire community in systems change and policies. One of the biggest um, things that I tell people is while we're on the ground doing all the work, all the great work, there mm -hmm. is a policy that could drop out of the sky. <laughs> 
that would change how you do that work. Yes. And unless you're engaged in both on the ground and the macro policy making of it, what you do may absolutely be in vain. Mm-hmm. So um, we have a nonprofit. Well, we have a policy, public policy newsletter. So I would encourage your listeners to go sign up for that. Um, our director of public policy, Brian Zeru, is excellent. We're going to yes. increase capacity in that area. And we want to make sure that we're focusing on um, who is engaged in policy making, who policies may harm throughout oh, yes. the city and the state, um, who's at the table when we're deciding, when Forefront's deciding what our policy agenda will be for the year. So you'll actually hear more about that in the coming months. But the essential premise is both on our nonprofit and our foundation side is we all have to work together to make sure the policies that may be coming down federally or statewide Mm -hmm. are essentially good for the nonprofit sector, the social Mm -hmm. impact sector. And so we're working really hard in-house to keep track Yes. The, the tracking is, is really, if you're not familiar with our <laughs> legislative system, that can throw you off. Yeah. <laughs> so we try to provide as many cheat sheets as we can along the way. Um, it takes you back to high school. Bill is yeah. a bill. So that is, and then we, I have to say that we do partner with other nonprofits across the state to do that. We mm-hmm. don't do it alone we, and we don't do everything. So we're very cognizant and appreciative of other policymaking partners. Yeah, yeah. And I just want to stop now and just say thank you guys for all that you do, especially in the DEI space. That's diversity, equity and inclusion. I mean, you guys are making the business case for DEI, you know, rather than it just being something that feels good and it's the right thing to do. If people don't understand the business case, they're not going to get on board. So I want to say thank you for that. And then most recently, you guys have really taken a, a really strong stand, I I guess, I don't want to say against the city of Chicago, but the city of Chicago was going to or is going to expand the definition of lobbying beyond what the federal federal government intends it to be. Whereas if you even talk to people who work for the city and let them know some of the issues that you're having with the program, how it can work smoothly, more smoothly or whatever, then you you have to register as a lobbyist. So in effect, everybody in your organization could literally be a lobbyist and that's onerous. This is such a hot topic and such a hard thing. In, 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 in its truest form, I, I try to understand it. For sitting on this table, I always try to understand what the opposite perspective is, the opposing mm-hmm. perspective. What I've often found is mm-hmm. policies are made for bigger houses, for bigger people, for bigger organizations. <laughs> And they don't take into effect how they impact us, quote unquote, little people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that's constantly where we're sitting. I'm like, I understand it to a degree, but if you back up to how who it really impacts, it's mm-hmm. us. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> I appreciate you acknowledging that. I hope everyone does stay in touch with that. It, it, it minimizes the voice that you can have and you want to mm-hmm. always have your voice. Yes, yes. And, and I think that's a really good segue to the next question about your strategy, and that's on collective action. You know, we just shared a couple of examples of collective action that you're engaged in. So what are some of the other issues that you're involved in? And I, I know you also 
help others to engage in collective action. You're not just doing all the work yourselves. <laughs> it is it is a space where we're like the nucleus. So let me give you one example that you know may not be so public. Mm -hmm. um, we have what are called peer networks. And so peer networks are centered around an issue area or a type of work that someone does. And so the collective action comes in when different organizations come to the table of that peer network. If they're a funder and they know that within their um, strategy of their organization, they can dedicate $50,000, I'm just throwing a number out there. Um, mm -hmm. And together funders may do pooled funding. They may decide that the best way to tackle an issue is to invest a million dollars into you know, the west side of Chicago to address food insecurity just picking things out of the air right now. Um, mm -hmm. But the collective action comes in, we will choose organizations that are not always readily funded. Mm. We will seek out um, BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, People of Color leaders um, that we know have ear to the ground, can work on this issue and invest more dollars in those organizations. That is collective action and strategic partnerships where it goes looking beyond organizations that can readily apply for funding um looking beyond the the one organization that we know very well um, because they've been in the news or loud enough to say this is what we do um and so we are working to build that collective action across the state wow um and why that is important is because during covid when we are faced with something that affects all of us, no matter our race, no matter our age, no matter our gender, it affects all of us, maybe in different ways. The paths to get funding and resources to every part of our state, urban and rural, is really difficult. Mm -hmm. And the opportunity to see where we are more alike than we are different yes. still remains. And so that's where my, my vision is for collective action to happen throughout the state. Yeah, that's interesting. And speaking of throughout the state, you know, you clearly have started a listening tour. What I love about the fact that you're celebrating your first 100 days and you start off with the listening tour, you were clear to say, well, this isn't the end. Just because I had my 100 days doesn't mean that the listening stops. Mm -hmm. So can you share with us, you know, some nuggets from your first 100 days listening? It was so funny, Valerie. Um, <laughs> There was like great appreciation for Forefront. And then there was like the big question, wait, what does Forefront do? <laughs> I was like, but you appreciate us so much. Um, so the biggest nugget was we have to improve our, our communications about who we are and what we do across the mm -hmm. state. Um, it was so inviting. It was it, it was a moment, it is still is a moment of, we wanna learn more about Forefront, we wanna learn more about you, but we also want to inform what you do. So, I and I, I absolutely agree with that. Every member of Forefront, every um, stakeholder, every donor, you have a say so in what Forefront does, you just mm -hmm. have to get engaged. So the biggest nugget for me was to make sure that we're always accessible. Mm -hmm. um, the other was, there is this healthy competition between what our nonprofit, operating nonprofits need or think or want and what our foundation um, members need or think or want. And then there's a space in the middle where they haven't clearly communicated <laughs> that and how it fits with each other. And so I'm looking to get in that wedge. 
Um, and so my, my two nuggets were get in the wedge and be really clear about what we're able to offer throughout the entire state and make mm -hmm. sure we're including racial equity as it applies to each community. Okay, awesome. And this might seem a little redundant, but it's, I guess the same question in another way. Um, were there any emerging themes that you could see and did those themes differ based on geography or stakeholder position? They did. So there is this this um, disconnect between what um, possibly, I don't know that it's a disconnect or just voice um, discontent between funding opportunities in our Chicago metropolitan area mm -hmm. um, versus the needs that may be further downstate and not understanding why maybe funding is not flowing from those organizations downstate, at least not at the rate or the visibility that we would like to see. Mm -hmm. um, so that that theme resonated not only in my, my tour in metropolitan Chicago, but actually downstate. So much mm -hmm. so that we're trying to think of ways to make sure they're always mm -hmm. um, The other thing was, what does racial equity look like? And that was the question that I got, regardless of where I went. What does that mm -hmm. look like for my my rural um, community where my population is 99% white? Mm -hmm. um, what does that look like where I'm really more concerned about workforce development, and we don't we might not have any racial equity issues in our community? And so my theme for that was just meeting people where they are in the discussion, yeah. mm -hmm. um, and we'll get there. The bottom line is equity. And what I know for sure is when you're evaluating equity at the very, very bottom, mm -hmm. you get to race. And then that's how I build back up. Even if I'm it. talking about poverty, no matter where I am, if I look at poverty as it applies to black folks, brown folks, white folks, I'm going to see that the lowest is still based on race. And then I build up from there. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that sounds to me like a winning strategy for for building you know, support from others who are not necessarily directly impacted. It is, it's building support and more so Valerie, it's building understanding. Um, when, we, when we're able to stop seeing each other as a competition, like if, if I gave this community some, some funding, and I don't have any funding to give, but if I did, right, right. <laughs> and another community sees um, that they are in need and nothing is happening, mm -hmm. that's where that discontent comes from. Gotcha. So just just understanding, I guess, the priority. Mm -hmm. That's what gotcha. Yeah. Can you share some of your early wins? You know, I will say being at Forefront is a breath of fresh air. It having worked in the different areas that could be members of Forefront and now sitting in the middle of it, the early win for me was realizing that I actually knew what I was doing. <laughs> um, I'm like, oh, I do know this. There's no such thing as don't know what you're doing. Um, and then the second early win was having a team that was ready to get to work. Like it, they were went, went through a pandemic, went through leadership transition, all of that. And they have all of these great creative ideas. And so they came with that. 100%. I was like, yes, <laughs> this is this. So being able to communicate a lot in my first 100 days is an early win. Um, being accessible and having um, leaders across the state offer their suggestions, their true, raw, 
transparent suggestions. Mm -hmm. So um, we ended the year with a, a good budget or a budget that was in the not in the red, which is a lot to say for this. this year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we planned a virtual event. Um, and I don't think we'll ever go back to what we had before. So mm -hmm. having Heather McGee and Secretary Grace Ho in a conversation about Illinois um, mm -hmm. was a good start. And I'm, I'm looking forward to future conversations, one that's actually next week. Oh, great, great. And you want to give a plug for, for that event? I do. So if you go to our <laughs> website and register, the first one is July the 20th. And is a conversation with one of my board members, new board members, Natalie Beck, and some community members from Decatur about how they are addressing racial equity. Um, and we're going to go a little deeper than we were able to do in our virtual summit last month. So mm -hmm. um, about an hour, I'll moderate and... It is in this way that I know for sure we understand each other better and what we're trying mm -hmm. to accomplish and we see less of a threat. Mm -hmm. Great. All right. So, you know, from my own experience, I found out that DEI or diversity, equity and inclusion, you know, it's not necessarily always about race or even gender, you know, and, and if we do it right, DEI cuts a whole lot deeper. Mm -hmm. And from your experience, what are some ways that organizations can move from tokenism? That is, you know, just going down a checklist. We got this, check that, blah, blah, blah. You know, trying to build an organization around check marks. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I think we've all seen that, right? So, so how do we go from that to creating an actual organizational culture that truly reflects diversity, equity, and inclusion in everything it does. That is, it becomes a core value. It is. So I'll take culture over strategy any day, but I recognize that culture takes longer to change and maintain. Um, I have a colleague in the field that does a, um, a visual. He comes to all, he comes to meetings with a glass of milk and some Hershey syrup and he pours the syrup in the bottom and then he stirs it up. He says, you put the diversity in there and it's going to sink to the bottom, but you got to do some stirring in your organization. Ooh. The stirring in the organization is what we have to do. So I'll tell you, I'll share what we're doing internally at Forefront. We are working on culture change internally to understand and learn from each other. My staff is very diverse. Um, learning, um, Latin background, learning Black background. I have a Palestinian staff member. Um, learning each other and offering that ongoing forgiveness for fumbles mm -hmm. is key to culture change. Mm -hmm. I am not a DEI expert. I go through the door, though, like identifying immediately what possibly needs to change, but I would never say that I'm an expert. Mm -hmm. So in a space, in an organization, you win when you are dedicated to constantly learning, constantly adjusting, and not seeing that learning and adjustment as something that hinders you from doing your job. Because oh. our job now is to learn each other better mm -hmm. and be willing. And I find it absolutely, Valerie, I find it fun and fascinating and I want to get involved. I'm so I'm too giddy sometimes about it. And my staff's like, hold on. <laughs> but that's awesome. You get in a space where you don't see diversity, equity, and inclusion as a hindrance to your job. You know you're in it for the long run. And I am a 
believer in prevention. As a social worker, I've long been a believer in prevention. And I'm tired of hearing people say prevention takes too long. Well, DEI is prevention. Mm -hmm. It is essentially putting things into place so that we don't continue to fumble and make the same mistakes that our ancestors made. Mm -hmm. I love it. And then too, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, I, a few minutes before that, you know, making the business case for DEI. I know some of that work kind of started with Eric, you know, before he left, um, you know, the former CEO. Mm -hmm. And I know that you're picking up the mantle. What are some of the challenges and then how are you kind of working through those challenges? The challenges is, are change, you know, people understanding why change is necessary and I welcome change. The business case, if you look across any for-profit business, the organizations that have um, a more diverse team and board are by far more profitable. Um, they do not make some of the goofs that some of our larger um, corporations have made with marketing that nobody looked at, <laughs> nobody thought to read that, um, their bottom line in the market is by far better. Um, and so we have to think about diversity of thought, diversity of experience and expertise when we're talking about DEI. Yes, there's a race, and ethnicity on the outside, but inside of that person that's different from you, where you grew up and where you went to school, yeah, helps inform your bottom line in your businesses. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you a really good example. Me and my, my CFO, he is also black. We are not from the same world. I'm all nonprofit, that's all I've ever known. He is corporate to the core. <laughs> that is what he knows. And we are excellent together because <laughs> he will keep me from just writing checks. Not that I'm gonna write checks, but right. he sees that. If I come to him, a good partner, come to him with an idea and he's like, I'm gonna poke holes at it until it's not, not until it's unpokeable. That's what I, I need. It. That is what you need on your team. If you have, if you are an all non-BIPOC team and you don't have that diversity for someone to poke holes in something that you've done because you didn't live that way, because you didn't see that it would be a problem down the line, your bottom line will suffer. Yeah. The business case will suffer. And it, it just makes common sense. Yeah. And I, I think too, um, you know, switching off to equity, mm -hmm. the equity part of the equation, I think is very hard I, in my opinion that's the hardest to achieve it is how do, how do you make sure that that equity comes about the first thing is you have to really realistically understand the capacity that it takes so we try to drop equity on like i have a staff of 20 plus we try to mm -hmm. drop equity on us like we can all do it the same that is not the case people think they need to be able to staff your organization in a space where someone is responsible for mm. making sure there is equity within and there is equity without. Um, so case number one, just just do that. Just trust me, <laughs> put, put someone in charge. Um, if you don't have the capacity to put someone in charge, add someone. And what that looks like is the ability to shift and change and adjust to what is needed. That is what equity is in its most raw, forms. If you are offering a service, I'll give you the example, the policy that we just talked about, public policy. As it stands, 
yes, we engage community members on our public policy agenda. Is it equitable? Hmm, we have to really look at that. Who's at the table? How much more energy, time, time, and capacity will it take to make sure we are inclusive and equitable in mm -hmm. that process? So it is both a process and an outcome. And the process is where we get messed up and mm -hmm. thinking about not thinking about the capacity needed to carry it out. It is very hard, very mm -hmm. hard. Mm -hmm. And I think too, you didn't come out and say it. Um, accountability is critical. You Absolutely. know, if, if you don't have this one point person, you know, who's responsible for making it happen, there's a good chance it won't happen. Forefront has an advancing racial equity committee um, that is led up until July the 27th by the great Angelique Power. Um, it will be after her time led, co-chaired by um, Kristen Mack and MacArthur Foundation and oh, Maria Pesquera okay. of um, okay. Healthy Communities Foundation. So I I, I love my board. I have yeah. a great board. Um, awesome. But this committee is charged with making sure first internally forefront is in line with our racial equity steps. And then externally, we're able to offer our members what makes sense for them in their racial equity journey. So we, we they started that before I got here. I actually joined in on meetings before I even started my job so okay. that I could figure out where we were in this journey. Okay. Wow, that is awesome. You are blessed with an awesome board. <laughs> And the city of Chicago is going to miss Angelique. <laughs> We're going to go though. We're going. I I tell her I'm going to be at your office door. Detroit is not that far away. Right, just across the lake. <laughs> yeah, they can have all our lake effects. No, I know, right? <laughs> all right, so you guys are just now starting a, a new strategic planning process, and I know strategic planning is not new to you. It's not new to the forefront. But, you know, this is a new time. So what are some of the things that you're doing to prepare? So, you know, I spoke in the beginning of our, our call about the healthy competition between our nonprofits and our, our foundations. Also, the healthy, healthy what looks like competition between Forefront being a Chicago-based but statewide focused organization. We're gonna look closer at those two things plus embedding racial equity in it. Um, I am fully committed, the board is fully committed, the staff is fully committed in forefront offering our services statewide, um, including racial equity as a core value and making sure that we are offering what is needed for both our nonprofit operating nonprofits and our foundation partners. Um, so we're looking at our business model. We know that a lot of organizations cropped up during COVID and that's mm -hmm. necessary to sustain. We don't want them to just go away, but nor do we just need 200 more nonprofit organizations in the state of Illinois, right? right. <laughs> so, we only have 37,000. <laughs> um, actually, there are 56. Oh, oh my goodness. One of my, my staff, the fabulous Sarah, that for me the other okay. day. I was like, wow, I'm going to guess that about 20 of them are kitchen, hopefully kitchen table nonprofits whose paperwork has just been sealed. Okay. Okay. Um, but we're committed to understanding the gaps in the system. So my vision is that those gaps will no longer exist. I understand that I'll probably be gone before gaps are closed, but I intend to use mm -hmm. everything I know to close the gaps that our most vulnerable folks fall through early and often. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so that's where the strategic plan will be focusing on. Forefront has the luxury to be able to be in partnership with folks across the state. So I want to make sure we use that to the best of our ability. Okay. That is awesome. And you guys have over 1,100 um, partners or, or members. members. Yeah, right. and probably many more partners because everybody who partners, you, you know, I was a partner long before I was a member. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so the, how do you make sure, and, and it's hard, how, how do you make sure that the voices of such a diverse group, such a large group are all um, somehow represented in the strategic plan? So like most organizations, there of course would be a fabulous survey. However, um, the survey is one part. The on, it's the ongoing part. So just as the listening tour didn't end, even with strategic planning, once we get that feedback, it doesn't end. So um, as a member, you always have the ability to send a message, send a note, attend a program, particularly doing the membership orientation is really helpful. Um, so our members get a say, obviously, in board member, they have to vote on our board members. Um, they will get a heads up about goals for our strategic plan and how to inform them. Um, as I move throughout the state, when it makes sense, members, open houses, um, or if we had open houses face-to-face again, <laughs> opportunity to engage. So unfortunately, the onus is on the member to pick how they want to engage with us. Yes. And when we invite, we obviously mm-hmm. really want. One of the things that we did very well, I believe, in the virtual summit was recognizing that everyone couldn't afford a $120 ticket to mm-hmm. attend the virtual summit. So we did back off of the prices thinking about the accessibility because to me, the conversation was more important than the cost. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was fundraising. Yes, we took a hit, but that conversation was more important than the cost of a ticket. Mm-hmm. So it's thinking through how we engage the different categories of our membership, because we do have our foundation partners are all divided, family foundations, community foundations, corporate. Mm-hmm. And so we think about them and how their business model operates and how we can engage with it. Mm-hmm. The same for our consultants. Um, consultants are very busy right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, a lot of you, a lot of you all are booked up through the year. <laughs> grateful for that. Um, But there's a management piece to that that I'm seeing that I'm proud of that our Mm -hmm. consultants need to balance and to balance their well-being with Mm -hmm. what trauma comes with some of the organizations that they're working with. So it has to be, unfortunately, very um, individualized, Valerie. I couldn't give you a scope of how we would engage with 1,100 members. Right. (laughs) I think anybody who tries to do it alone is. is, is I do. So I do have a, we do have a whole team. So I should say that anytime someone emails us, we have a whole team that is dedicated to helping members figure out what they need in the moment that they need it. So they will not go unheard. Right. And I could vouch for that. Again, even before I became a member, Mm -hmm. people were responsive to me. You know, there was never any, oh, we're going to treat her somehow less because she's not not a member so that's awesome I don't think, um so i have to say there i don't have a staff of, of people in the bag going is she a member is there a member are they a member <laughs> we don't talk that before we respond to an email and i'm i hope that we never do but what what we often see is 
maybe an opportunity to introduce someone to membership so that if they have this problem in the future, they can figure out how to navigate it differently. Yes, yes, yes. And I, I know, you know, you and I had a chance to talk um, during COVID, you know, when it first hit a year ago when you were with Evanston. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering now, you know, now that you're in, at forefront, you guys are doing strategic planning mm -hmm. and God willing, we're coming out of this. Is has COVID your COVID experience somehow impacted the way you're looking at strategic planning? Absolutely. I, was, I spoke earlier about being a nimble organization. So pre-COVID or exactly the weekend that Governor Pritzker shut the state down, the team at Forefront was supposed to move into this building that we're in now. Beautiful space, awesome space. Not necessary as much as it was pre-COVID. Mm -hmm. um, so how we're thinking about how we move about our work is more virtual. It's more flexible. Um, it's more accessible because it is virtual. So we're thinking about technology a lot more than we had been. Um, you've seen every cyber attack that has come across the, the nationally. Yes, yes. Also have to think about that. Um, commonly, it also means that I don't have to have staff in my office in Chicago. You know, no nonprofit organization or no national organization thinks about having one office. I won't have offices throughout the state, but the flexibility to work from home, from a local space um, is, is more reticent now than it was pre-COVID. The last thing that I really think about, and I talk about this all the time, is mental health. Um, as, a, as a therapist, first and foremost, I want anyone to be able to bring their whole selves to work. Um, and that's previously we would say, leave it at the door. And then when you go home, don't take it home. Well, we were all at home, but we took it all home. Um, and you couldn't stop Johnny or Jimmy from walking in behind you saying, I need to eat. So the way that we think about how we are and who we are in the workplace has changed. So I have to recognize that. And I hope other leaders across the, the world are also recognizing that and not so reticent to just go back to mm -hmm. Indeed, indeed. So when we look at your recruitment, as well as your onboarding process, what does that look like for Forefront? And, and what are some of the key elements for success? Mainly, we have to make sure we recruit across the state. So um, I had a, a one former board member suggests making sure we recruit board members in every legislative district. Mm. You know, it was very, very creative. And so um, what I know I need is to make sure that I, while Chicago is very, very, um, we're a flexible community, we're <laughs> very liberal. Yes. The entire state is not. So I want to make sure that I have the opposing voices that I need on my board yes. um, to give me to just I, I need that insight. I need them to be able to talk. I need me to be able to talk and meet with them. So my recruitment means that we need to change. Mm -hmm. We need to change who's at who's at our table. Um, and with that, I hope to build in some more social aspects. So my board members learn a little bit more about each other, um, are connected on some issues that affect our entire state more, and they are retained. Um, I've lost board members only because they've gone on to greater things. Like mm -hmm. my former board chair, not my former board, but Grace Hope, she went on to be 
the secretary for the digital department, right? And then Angelique is moving to um, to Detroit. So I love that board members come and stay and lend, and we recruit with that eye. Mm -hmm. um, so that is where where we need to get more deep on our recruitment and making sure we also have exceptional representation from our nonprofit community on our board. Mm -hmm. And then too, you know, I, I know it, it gets difficult. Uh, how do you make sure that the grassroots voices are represented? You know, you hear people going back and forth. Well, they may not necessarily have the capacity to give, you know, their time because they're so busy or they may not have the capacity to give money. How do you, but, but yet you have to make sure that their interests are represented as well. One of the things that we just started doing, um, particularly with our MSI, Mission Sustainability Initiative, is paying our nonprofit leaders for their time. Wow. Um, and I, you know, you, you're taking a limited, someone with limited capacity out of taking their expertise from running their organization to inform your project. Mm -hmm. um, so in any instance of that, I always, always, always recommend if you have the capacity, compensate them in some way. Oh, I love it. For my board, we do not compensate board members. That's illegal. Yes. <laughs> however, <laughs> however um, making sure that we are cognizant of the representation that's there and of their time taken away from their organization and being as flexible as we can. There was a space in life when I felt like we needed to schedule meetings like on the evenings and on the weekends for nonprofit leaders. And then I realized nonprofit leaders don't want to be with you in the evenings on the weekends. They want to be with their families. So yes, they'll steal away an hour of a day to you know work with you on a project rather than add an hour to their day or their weekend to work with you. So just being cognizant of what we think is helpful that's not so helpful is actually very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. I'll tell you, Monique, this has been so this has been a wonderful conversation. And I wish I could just go on and on because every time I talk to you, every time I listen to you or read something about you and what you've done or are doing, I learned something. And you know, you can't say that about everybody, but it's true, <laughs> it's true of you. Thank you. Not just talking to talk, you actually live it in. So I, I really appreciate your being here. Thank you. It's a fun life. Yes, yes. Yeah, you enjoy it. It's it's very clear that, you know, this is your mission, this is your calling, and, you know, you're living it. And, Thank you. And it's a blessing to, to be <laughs> working in a job. That's also your, what, avocation? Is, is that it what? is. Someone, someone told me when I was um, contemplating college, contemplating college, I don't think I had a choice about college, but... <laughs> Right, right, right. Contemplating what I would do in college, I had an aunt who wanted me to be a business attorney. I have an aunt, I should say, who wanted me. They were just throwing in their ideas about a business attorney. And I was like, mm -hmm, I don't think I'd be a good attorney. I'm too emotional for that. And mm -hmm. I was right. <laughs> so now she sees that I'm emotional to be in the courtroom. <laughs> but think of, you could be an effective litigator. <laughs> yeah, well, that may be true. Yeah, yeah. But then, too, you probably, if you're anything like I am, you probably have to have a cause that you believe is worth fighting for. Yeah. For, true. you know, for that passion to come out. All righty. So we have come to the end of our show and I want to thank 
Thank you again, Monique. Uh, we're talking to Monique Bronson-Jones. She is the president and CEO of Forefront. And thank you so much for being a guest. Um, before we go, any closing thoughts? Simple closing thoughts. Just take care of yourself. Um, we are in, I will use this word hopefully for the last time, unprecedented times. Um, and those unprecedented times calls for really radical action. So however you can inform your radicalness, please mm -hmm. do. Thank Indeed. you. Thank you. Alrighty, so I'd like to thank you for listening to today's episode of Nonprofit Utopia. I encourage you to go to iTunes and give us a review and be sure to join us next week. And we look talk you know, forward, I'm sorry, to talking to you and sharing lessons learned. All right, take care.